Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. I've taken my usual precautions when it comes to how I look. When I'm out on the job, it boils down to blending in, disappearing in a crowd. Today, I'm in blue jeans and a grey sweater. No labels, all plain. My one memorable removable item is a red Kansas City Chiefs hat pulled low over my eyes. I doubt I'll need it, but better to be safe than sorry. The idea is that if someone were to describe me to the police, they'll fixate on the hat and not really see the rest of me. And because it's removable, I can dispose of it easily. Another way to disappear. Fitting in is about how I act too. Everything is considered down to the smallest detail, like how I sit at the table with the newspaper spread out open and my laptop beside it. A cursory glance at the real estate listings shows Ethelton prices have gone up a lot. But Manson has somehow managed to defy the adage that real estate doubles every 10 years. The prices don't seem to have moved much since the late 90s. Contrary to what the media would have you believe, I doubt places like Manson have really gotten any rougher over the years. It's just new strains of the same disease. Poorer small towns have replaced crack and amphetamines with opioids. The kids do most of their bullying online. Domestic violence hasn't disappeared with advancements in technology. Ethelton might be where all the money is, but they've had their own problems. Not to the same scale as Manson, but there's drug use, suicides, DUIs. The difference is the ugliness is hidden away there. No broken windows on the boulevard, no boarded up shops. Almost no graffiti. And even within Ethelton, the class divides are stark. Close to town is mostly blue-collar workers, but out in the hills where Oliver and Ashana Stiles lived, that's where the money is. J.P. Pomare's debut novel, Call Me Evie, won the prestigious Nio Marsh Award for Best First Novel. His subsequent novels include In the Clearing, The Last Guests, and the number one audible bestseller, Tell Me Lies. Today I'm talking to J.P. about his fifth and latest book, The Wrong Woman. JP, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. The Wrong Woman is set in two towns, twin towns, Ethelton and Manson. Unremarkable towns, but contrasting socially and economically. Tell me about the twin towns of Ethelton and Manson of your imagination. You're right to point out they are contrasting in in many ways, but like towns of this nature that are quite close geographically but worlds apart in terms of the socioeconomic makeup of the the population there is some sort of tension there and there are places like this I mean I don't know if it's so much like this in in New Zealand anymore but I think Hastings and Napier or rather um, Hastings and Havelock North which is quite close by is a a good example where you know just up the road 15-20 minutes away you have um, a different sort of class of people um you don't have so much of a problem with gangs and, and that sort of thing and so i sort of looked at at, at these kind of anomalies because i think we look at the way gentrification happens and um outward from a city and we look at that kind of cascading effect and that doesn't happen so much between cities out in the country you can have affluent areas really close to poor areas and i so, so i sort of wanted to interrogate that a little bit and put them 
put them side by side and close together and see how they, yeah, how they would interact. And there is obviously a cross section of people who fit in on both sides. So yeah, it was, it was quite fun to write and that there was always a sort of source of tension there. And these two towns, Ethelton and Manson, you don't really place them anywhere. They're kind of unsituated towns. They could be anywhere. Are you searching for a, a kind of a sense of anonymity in, in doing that? Yeah, there's, there's practical reasons I chose to do it that way, but also a kind of, I guess, artistic reason in that. I think it's easier. The, the reason it's even set in the States is it's, um, I wanted it to have a, to feel like it could be anywhere. Um, to have a sense, although there's things that are very American about it, you know, the presence of guns and, and the way the police um, conduct themselves, and even the fact that Reed, a private investigator, is hired by an insurance company, um, you know, that would seem strange or, or, or probably less common, I suppose, in somewhere like Australia or even the UK. So, yeah, so there are things that really tether it to the States, but I also wanted it to be ambiguous in terms of precisely where it's set so it's easier to sort of imagine and the other I guess the practical reasons are there's much lesser requirement for exactitude in terms of the setting and layout of the city so people often you know particularly you see a lot in Australian crime fiction there's these towns that have renamed but they're more or less identical to real places um, and that's just so you've got the creative freedom to do it and so you're not upsetting any locals and things like that um, I haven't really done it so much in the past. I did it within the clearing. Uh, I set it in Warrandyte, um, but I renamed it. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, anyone from Warrandyte could see it was based on that. But So it wasn't, you know, technically set there. Um, and so, so, so in a way, I've done that with this as well. Like I used a, um, there's a college town, there's a campus there called Ithaca. Um, and I forget precisely where it is. I think it's even really, sort of upstate New York, maybe possibly um, Pennsylvania, ambiguously northeast. And I looked at the college town and the layout and I was using Google Maps and I couldn't get over there because lockdowns um, and I planned to until probably probably about a year or probably maybe even nine months out from publication. There was still a chance I was going to dash over. Yeah, just have a bit more of a look around and try to pick up a few more details to lend it some more authenticity and... So I did have a place in mind, but then the closer we got to publication, the more ambiguous we sort of made it to the point that the voice actor for the audiobook, we wanted the most neutral kind of northeast, maybe out allocation, but northeast kind of accent. It couldn't be a Boston accent because that's too distinct, or it couldn't be a New York accent. So it had to be a general American, northeast American accent. Um, and that was all, yeah, like I said, pretty deliberate to, so it's not fixed to a place. And that sense really feeds through to the central character, Vince Reed. He's quite unremarkable. Uh, he was once a cop in Ethelton. He's kind of like a Mr. Average. He's plain. He, in fact, he goes out of his way to be anonymous. What's Vince Reed doing back in the twin towns of Ethelton and Manson? Yeah, he's back. He doesn't want to be back, but he's, it's a good job. Um, he's getting paid well uh, to do a pretty straightforward investigation. He doesn't anticipate trouble, um, of course. Uh, and he thinks enough times past that people won't really recognise him in town. But of course, it's a crime novel, so that goes wrong <laughs> for him. I won't 
describe precisely how that, that that unfolds but it's almost a trope return to your hometown where you're not really welcome i sort of wanted to undermine it a little bit i wanted to play with that to see what what i can do differently with it and reed is you know by his own estimation one of the most unremarkable people you could find you know um and he fits in in this setting really well in terms of how he dresses how he speaks where he goes car he drives everything about him's designed to fit in in a general sense but particularly in this setting and so he's he's equipped to kind of enter town do the job and get out but but of course it, that's not exactly how it plays out and so he's there to investigate a an insurance claim basically as a result of an accident where does that lead him reed goes to investigate this woman who's in a coma from a car crash right and so because she's badly hurt the assumption isn't that she was just trying to write off the car to make some money. The assumption isn't necessarily that it was a murder-suicide because the signs point to her breaking um, before she, before the collision. And, and so he's, there's a few things that are just juicy enough for him to start to wonder if perhaps it wasn't an accident. Um, and he uses the term NQR, not quite right. And so there's a few things. It was wet. So, of course, that, that increases the likelihood. But then there was a big argument at the restaurant they were coming from. And there's a few things that makes him think this isn't quite right. But something else has happened in the Twin Towns. There's uh, a couple of young women have been missing uh, over the last six months too. They didn't know each other. One was went missing during the day. One went missing in the evening. The police aren't linking them as disappearances, but um, locals will speculate that perhaps they are linked. And Reed begins to notice patterns and he begins to realize that the man who died in the car crash was linked to both of the girls in, in different ways. And so although he wants to get in and out and get the job done, the, the person he's investigating, Shana, when she comes out of a coma, he begins to realize she might have the answers as well. Um, and so he's, yeah, he's just doing, going about it. He's a real classic kind of gumshoe. He's dogged. He's just going about his his job trying to figure out um, if the car crash was accidental and if it wasn't, why, what, 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 why did she crash on purpose if, if that was the case? And so there's a whole bunch of questions he's hoping to resolve, but also finds himself embroiled in the missing woman kind of cases as well. It's also interesting how Reed arrives in the twin towns to investigate a certain thing, but he finds himself embroiled in, something completely different and gets further into the case. He is encountering this idea of deception. He thinks he's pursuing something, but then it turns into something else. And that reminded me as a reader never to trust the obvious because I thought I had the culprit at the back, but of course uh, I didn't. Is deception the foundation of crime fiction for you? And, and is that the author's power to get inside the mind of the reader? Yeah, it's, it's so weird because I, I, um, I'm just listening to the audiobook again because I kind of forgot I did an event and everyone's like, oh, the twists, oh, there's so many great twists and stuff. And I was, I was trying to think, what are the twists? What actually? Um, and, and I think that's born out of, to go to your point, speak to your point about deception, it's born out of this idea that, um, you know, twists is just essentially undermining readers' expectations, right? Undermining base assumptions that readers will have about um, the story, be it who is doing what, um, when it's set, where it's set. You know, these big, big assumptions. The bigger the assumption the reader has, the more steadfast they are in that assumption. I guess the bigger the twists when 
they realized that that assumption was wrong. And so when you're writing and you're, you're teasing these twists out, um, often it starts off as a small twist and often you're thinking, wow, that's a great little twist. But then you go, oh, well, if the reader really assumed this, if I can, if I can set it up even more, if I can make them even more certain in their belief in this misdirection and, as you say, deception, then when I deliver the twist and they, they realize what the reality is, it's going to be even more effective. So, um, but, but as a writer, you, don't, you aren't thinking about this deception in those early drafts. It's only later on when you begin to think this could really work. This could be really strong if I, if I tease this out a bit more. So slow, methodical layering of deception, you know, that um, the details you decide to uh, dispatch and when um, there's, there's other elements to this as well. And that I would argue there's no deception. There's always, there's always the hints on the page, right? Um, if you missed it, that's your, you know, that's you, that's you, that's on you. So, so it goes both ways, but, but, you know, we, as authors, we always sort of know what we're doing there as well. So um, an argument could be made both ways, I think. <laughs> There's a lot of elements in this book, this deception we've been talking about, the uncertainty about the character of Vince Reed, and it, that all combines to bring about this really powerful sense of unease, especially this, I guess, this division between the twin towns, socially and economically. Uh, I just wondered whether is that something you have cultivated or is that just something as a, a result of all these factors coming together? I think the twin towns came to me, reasonably well-formed um, when you say cultivated. I think, I think I had, as much as they're completely fictional, I think I had a pretty strong sense of what they are and, and I guess what they needed to be. And it wasn't, certainly not on those early stages, it wasn't in service of the plot. They just came, you know, and the, the way that great characters sort of come about where you, they come before the plot, right? And then when you're writing, you have to decide because you know, you're thinking, oh, the plot's moving this way, but my character doesn't want to go that way. And you have to make a decision if you're going to change the character, fundamentally change the character in service of the plot. And often you lose something of the character. And the same can be said of setting, right? I think um, I think if you really, if I wanted this story to be something different, I would have had to have changed the setting in a way. But I, I kind of, I think I stayed with the setting. I, I, I like the setting so much that I had to make the story work because you know, these are affluent people that had to be involved in a college, right? And so there's a college, Sandown College, which is sort of north of Manson. And, and there's certain things, elements of the plot that um, would have, that came about because of the setting, right? And the setting sort of, sort of drove, the, drove the narrative in a sense as well. Certainly with things like the different reaction to certain scandals, you know, what Manson people, how they reacted versus how Etherton people, even, you know, there's a dance school who are the, are the mums that go to the dance school and how do they interact and can the Manson families afford to send the, the kids there and stuff like that. So there's a, there's lots of little elements of the plot that were largely driven by the setting as well. And if it was one setting as opposed to the Twin Towns, if it was, you know, just a, just a single town, um, I think those divisions wouldn't be as clear those kind of fault lines between the haves and have nots wouldn't be so clear it's not a 
crossing of the tracks, the other side of the track situation. They are, they are, they have their own um, really clear sort of sense of identity, these two places as well. And even within the more affluent area, there's still another echelon. There's still that kind of social stratification between the really wealthy and then the slightly less so, and then the kind of middle-class people who just happen to live there. So yeah, there's a, there, I think the setting to the short answers came really fully formed um, and really helped to drive the story. Well, it's definitely one of those books that keeps the reader, I guess, coming back and uh, trying to second guess what happens. And uh, I want to thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. I've been talking to JP Pomare about his book, The Wrong Woman. It's published by Hachette and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.